24. Luke 24. Special thank you to those men who stepped in for me the last couple of weeks as we adjust to uh, life with a new baby. And thank you for the support of all of you in that. As uh, Rose Abigail, born a couple of weeks ago, we're excited and thankful for, uh, for a healthy girl. So thank you to Mr. David Dick for preaching on Palm Sunday and for filling in. It's been so wonderful having you and your family with us the last few years. We can see that uh, you really have been trained well for ministry and we don't want to see you go, but we know that uh, the Lord has wonderful things in store uh, for David and Rachel and the kids. Uh, we, as we sat under your preaching, I think many of us just thought he's, he's now ready to, ready to fly. Reverend Blau, if you keep on getting experience, you too may be one day ready Thanks to Reverend Blau for filling in, uh, as he always does so well. And we have uh, Reverend Brinks with us tonight, so we hope you can, uh, can join us for that as we come back together at 5.30. I preached this text two Easter's ago, which was the last time we were together on Easter. Uh, kind of crazy to think about that. I'd like to expand kind of theologically and practically on some themes I wasn't able to, to bring out as we were finishing the Gospel of Luke together, so... Uh, We'll look to this text once again. We're going to skip over the middle of this chapter, the road to Emmaus, uh, and and go. We'll have the empty tomb, and then when Jesus appears to the disciples. So picking up back, verse 36. This is God's holy word. Once again, give your attention as it's read to us. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. And go to verse 36, one page over. This is after they hear the reports of the road to Emmaus account, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. 
And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's see if I can get through this in a timely manner. Keep, may keep you for a few extra minutes on an Easter Sunday. And uh, all will be well, I'm sure. I was talking with a good pastor friend of mine, a very close friend, uh, who had the, the duty, the privilege of performing, administering over a, a difficult funeral of a young person this past week. I was at the fire station in the middle of the week as the firemen dealt with a fatal crash on the expressway in the middle of the week. I was talking with a friend of mine who found out that a loved one was going on hospice care. Uh, I have pastored and sat with many of you over the past many months, year, year plus, 14, 15 months, said goodbye to many people. The uh, death count, the COVID ticker continues to go upwards. And all of that is to say that uh, we don't get a kind of a a very a guaranteed peaceful week leading up to Easter. And some of us may think, well, uh, it would be nice if we could kind of forget about all of the, the trials, the afflictions of this world, so that as we think about uh, the resurrection of Christ, kind of all of those worldly strains and stresses are not weighing our hearts down. You're never going to get a week like that. Now, thankfully, the Lord uh, often has seasons of us where we particularly experience suffering, but taken as a whole, this world is always steeped in affliction. And it's good to remember that around Easter Sunday because it is within the context of affliction that the resurrection means so much. Without affliction we might convince ourselves that this world is maybe not so bad, that we'd like to stay here, and maybe perhaps this is our home. We'll be using John Newton at various points today, as I often do, using his quotes, because he's such a wonderful uh, resource for for the Christian life. Uh, His own life is a bit of a picture of resurrection, lived the first part of his life for earthly pleasure at the expense of others, being a, a key part of the British slave trade. Second part of his life, he lived for heaven, the glory and the enjoyment of his God. And Newton says that afflictions continually remind us of something. This world is ultimately vain and unsatisfying. Your ultimate hope cannot be in this world. 
Afflictions teach us how foolish it is that we would convince ourselves that it is best that we should be here. No, it is best that we should be with Christ. It is best that we should be with him. When the reality of affliction hits, we see this world cannot give us the satisfaction that we long for. We must live this life as resurrection realists. I came up with that as I was considering the 20th century author, certainly not a Christian, but interesting thinker, Albert Camus. And uh, he was talking about how he wished people would live as realistic optimists, by which he means to be realistic is to say, well, we know there's nothing after the grave. We know that there is no resurrection. Modern man has moved beyond that. We know that that's a myth. But we can be as optimistic as possible. We can try to alleviate as much suffering as possible. That's, in many ways, an admirable way to live. But it does not square with the ultimate authority of things. For us, the resurrection is not wishful thinking. We're not sitting around here thinking, well, maybe one day it'll happen. The resurrection is not an analogical fulfillment. We don't think, well, it's the myth of Jesus rising from the dead. And so our spirits are kind of raised to a a higher level of joy and um, generosity in this world. That's not what the resurrection is about. We believe that Jesus Christ uh, has been raised from the dead. And the tomb really is empty. And all of those who are in him, all of those who share in the benefits of his work, all of those who are united to him spiritually, will indeed share in that resurrection. A life without the resurrection can ultimately hold no lasting optimism. So we live our lives as resurrection realists, which is to say there will be affliction in this world. There will be difficulty in this world. There will be pain and suffering and sorrow. Many things in this world will let us down and people in this world will let us down. If we live by faith in the Son of God, then the ultimate answer is always and will always be the resurrection of the dead. As we live with our lives bathed in the resurrection, it gives meaning to the past, it gives strength in the present, and hope for the future. So first, do you believe the unbelievable? Uh, This account in Luke, we see that there are various reactions, uh, and seems to be everything except uh, full faith. And to say that the resurrection is unbelievable is not to say that it is irrational or it is unreasonable. It is to say without the work of God, without the grace of God, without his life-giving spirit raising us, raising our hearts, our dead hearts to faith, we will not believe. Uh, The narrative of of Luke evokes so many different responses in the hearers of, uh, of the news of the empty tomb For various reasons. Initially it seems it would not have even entered the minds of the apostles or the followers of Jesus. That a a true and real resurrection would take place in this way. The the resurrections of Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Or raised the the daughter of of Jairus. They're they're different in kind than the resurrection of Christ. There's in a a sense we could call those revivings. Now they teach us that Jesus is the Lord of life and death. But Lazarus was raised. But he died again. Some reports have the tomb of Lazarus reading, Here lies Lazarus, twice dead, friend of Jesus. He actually went on to be a a minister of the gospel. What a powerful testimony and and witness. But he was raised, he was revived, but he, he died again. Many people believed in the resurrection that on the last day there will be a resurrection, but the thought of the reality of that resurrection kind of intruding into the present so that at the same time you had the curse of death, 
but also the reality of a true and real and lasting resurrection uh, existing at the same time would have been something very foreign to people. Now, the the lamentable, the tragic thing is that uh, the resurrection is too normal for many people, not only in the hearts of Christians, but anyone who lives in Western society that in many ways has kind of had the reality of the resurrection of Christ at least somewhere in the fabric of our society. We forget how much we need it in our daily comforts and many of the blessings that God has given to us. We have forgotten how badly we need the resurrection. But there are times certainly in our lives where uh, we will remember And so, all of these different responses we see in Luke 24. In verse 4, the women do not find the body, so they wonder. They're confused. In verse 5, they're frightened at the angels from the tomb. We know what's going on. We know why there are angels there. And joy fills our hearts as we read that verse. They didn't understand why. So they're frightened. In verse 11, the apostles have the very opposite of faith. They have unbelief because the words of the women seem like nonsense. Again, this this would have been so foreign to their minds. And we can be sympathetic Uh, For that reason, verse 12, Peter runs to the tomb, but he leaves wondering. He leaves marveling at what he has found, or perhaps he has not found. We move forward to the end of Luke 24, and uh, there's still yet reasons for why they don't believe that this resurrection is real and true and lasting. By the time the evidence mounts and they're seeing Jesus, it seems that the reason they're having trouble fully believing it is that it's too good to be true. So Jesus bids them to touch him and to look at his hands and his feet. It's that wonderful verse, verse 41. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. The ESV reads this this way. It says, they disbelieved for joy. In other words, they had trouble embracing it because it would be too joyful a truth you're scared to accept something that is just so good you know you hear that good news and it seems so good to be true in the back of your mind you're thinking i'm scared to fully believe this because if it's not totally true i will be so let down that's what's going on it would be too good if the resurrection actually were true and we need to remember that It is true, and it is that good. Albert Camus, in the novel The Plague, he has one of the main characters say at one point, salvation is much too big a word for me. I don't aim so high. See, that's the mentality of modern man. Eternal life, eternal blessedness and felicity with your creator, a a life that will never end and won't experience the afflictions of a cursed world. All of that is too good to be true. It's pie in the sky. It's for religious fanatics. Why? Because eternal hope, hope that goes beyond the grave, it answers our deepest need. If you think about what are the deepest pains that we experience in this world and what would be the, the, the deepest need that we have to answer those things, the resurrection is exactly the answer that we would want and that we would need. This life, for many, is one absurd thing after another, eventually ending in death. But the reality of the resurrection makes us realize how good our faith really is. And resurrection changes it all. I'd like to think for a couple minutes, though, about the demand of personal faith in Christ and in the resurrection. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in this resurrection that is so fundamental to 
our faith. One of the dangers of modern Christianity in America is that it's become too individualized. And it's too much about kind of, it's all about what's between me and God and there's no community I need to involve myself with. There's no, I don't need to sit under and listen to sermons. I don't need to submit to the government of, of the church. This certainly is a problem in modern America. We need to be aware of that. But an equally dangerous error is that the individual gets swallowed up in a more centralized Christianity that does not emphasize personal repentance and faith, personal trusting and receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. You go to the scriptures, you go to the the life of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he is demanding. Do you believe? Do you receive? Do you rest in Jesus Christ? So other wings of Christendom, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism uh, can fall into this danger of the individual being swallowed up in the larger project of what the church is doing. Jesus demanded a response of faith. Think about John 11. Jesus is going to Bethany to the family of Lazarus who are mourning for him. Martha comes out and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again at the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. John 20, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see him, until I touch him. So Jesus appears, says, Thomas, look at my hands and feet. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus has this Amazing thing that he says, really a beatitude in a way. Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We live at a time we're not going to see, behold with our eyes, the risen and exalted Christ, this side of glory. But are you participating in that blessing that Jesus says? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It confronts us with a question that is there a personal receiving the benefits of Christ and resting in him as your savior, not just an objective savior who died for sin, but did he die for your sin? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in his saving work? Think of the three R's of personal salvation What do you do if you believe in Christ? You repent, you receive, and you rest. You repent of your sin. All of us need to recognize that we we don't do salvation on our own. We can't achieve it. We acknowledge that we are unworthy, so we repent. We, as our Heidelberg Catechism says, we receive Christ and all of his benefits. And then we rest. We, We rest in him because he is a perfect savior. And there is nothing else that we need besides him. He is a savior who brings us all of the way to God. You think of Luke chapter 24. We know that the human heart will produce just about every response. Except genuine saving faith. If you look to Christ, if you believe in him, if you believe in the resurrection, then God has given you that faith. May God give us the grace to trust in him, to repent of sin to receive his benefits and to rest in him. Maybe some of you who are here today, that 
has not happened in your life. And perhaps God is working through the proclamation of his word now to awaken in your heart a true and a vital faith to repent of sin, to receive Jesus Christ and to rest in him alone for salvation. Resurrection is a glorious truth. Those who are united to him will enjoy it. And because of that, it becomes the central and defining act, not only of human history, but of your life. So the rest of the time today, bathe your life in the resurrection. Make it central. First, if you live your life with the resurrection at the center, it is at the center of human history, there is no doubt. Make it the center of your life. Make it the center of your life. It gives meaning to the past. What do we mean by that? The Apostle Paul said that his chief goal in life is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Just like our catechism says, there is a power in this resurrection. Transformative and real power. Power for the past and present and the future. It gives meaning to the past. What we mean by this is that since we are confident of the resurrection, we know that what we have suffered, our losses and our crosses, are not in vain. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, sharing in his sufferings. So the power of his resurrection is something that allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ in a way which glorifies God, like unto our Savior. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Take John chapter 20, that beautiful account of the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene has come. She's gone to get the men. Peter and John come running. And Peter and John leave, wondering and marveling. And then she is left there on her own, weeping. Think of the pain that Mary felt from Friday to Sunday. Here is her Savior. And the the issue for Mary Magdalene is, Jesus has saved me from much. He is my Savior. If he is not alive, what becomes of my sin? And all of us have that same issue. If our Savior is not alive, what becomes of our sin? We need a living Savior to be forgiven. We need a living Savior, a heavenly Savior, to bring us into eternal glory. And so Mary Magdalene is sitting there weeping, not knowing what has become of Jesus. And someone is behind her. Woman, why are you crying? She thinks it's the gardener. And then he says her name, Mary, reminding us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I will call them by name. They will hear my voice. They will recognize and they will follow. The shepherd knows the sheep. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The point is this, all of the pain that Mary Magdalene had felt and experienced from Friday to Sunday, all of a sudden it was given meaning because what fills her heart in that moment to see and behold the risen Christ and the devotion and love for her Savior that she experienced in that moment, she was brought to that moment because of the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the affliction. She was reminded how desperately she needed Jesus, how much she loved him. Afflictions do the same for us. It's given meaning to our past. So if you look at your past, do not grow bitter at what God has done. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're trusting that he is in control of every movement of your life, if he is sovereignly in control and you've given yourself in love and faith to him, if you're following after him and seeking to serve him, know 
that your past is given meaning, the afflictions, the pain, even your failures and sins, to remind you of how much you need and love your Savior. It gives meaning to the past. That's what is so beautiful about it. John Newton says, the far greater part of the promises in Scripture are suited to a state of affliction. The the resurrection is a wonderful promise, but it means so much. It is so much sweeter when you know you need it, when you know that your life is temporary, when you know that the life of a loved one is temporary. It gives meaning to the past. It gives strength in the present. Strength in the present. If you have not suffered in vain in the past, you will understand that you are not suffering in vain in the present. Christ gives us his spirit to bring us the benefits of Christ, to to bring to us the new life, the resurrection life. And that is a life of power and strength. For this, we consider the Apostle Peter, like Mary Magdalene, and perhaps in a much greater way than even Mary Magdalene knew, the, the resurrection had given meaning to the past of Peter. Think particularly of his own sin, his own denials of Jesus, and the way that Luke brings that together Where at the end, his third denial is the the most forceful. And at that very moment, Jesus turns and looks at him. Peter, who considered himself leader amongst the apostles. Think about the anguish that filled his heart. And we don't have the explicit account of it, because I think it's probably a story that we need to hear in heaven. Uh, But there was an appearance of Jesus to the apostle Peter. That he he appeared to Peter, and that's not what happens in John 21 when he's restored. That there was some moment between Jesus and Peter. And can you imagine the anguish that had filled his heart and then the joy that conversely filled his heart when he realized not only is Jesus alive, but that Jesus forgives him and that Jesus accepts him. And he's a a savior of second chances who looks to the one who has failed and who gives him grace and mercy and forgiveness and then go forward to John 21 so at this point in John 21 Peter knows that Jesus is alive and and that they have restored their personal relationship but then he's going to restore him to ministry and John and Peter are in the boat and John looks on the shore and he says it is Jesus that's probably because John was a good bit younger than Peter in all likelihood and had better eyesight and at this point Peter knows how much he loves his Savior, his living Savior. And we read that he throws on his outer cloak cloak, and he hurls himself into the sea. Um, The one who would not even take upon his lips the name of Jesus at this point throws himself into a, a, a dangerous body of water just so that he can be with his Savior. Matthew Henry says this. It may have been going through Peter's mind at this point. If Christ suffer me to drown and come short of him, it is but what I deserve for denying him. In Acts chapter 5, Peter, the one who denied Jesus around that fire Thursday night, Friday morning, is the one who was overjoyed because he was thought worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It gives strength for the present. And it makes us know our Savior. When we suffer, we know about him. We come to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. John Newton says, if we should go to heaven without suffering, we should be unwilling to desire it. 
Why should we ever wish to go by any other path than that which he has consecrated and endeared by his own example? Especially as his people's sufferings are not penal. There is no wrath in them, right? If your suffering is a Christian, in genuine and sincere faith, it is not God's penalty upon you. It is medicine for your soul to, to promote your chief good, to make you love him more. It gives strength for the present. Ultimately, as we look to that final moment, we know that God will give us strength even to die well. Newton says that Christ has perfumed the grave. He has taken that which is most foul in this world and sweetened it. It gives meaning to the past and strength for the present. It gives hope for the future. Return once more to my good pastor friend, the sad funeral that he had this past week. He said that there is something that is hauntingly final about the graveside. And uh, we have had many funerals and many gravesides in our congregation the last many months. It does. It feels final as we see the closed casket, the casket perhaps even being lowered, the flowers being distributed, the last earthly goodbyes being given. But the job of a minister, my, my job, which I humbly consider and think about often, is that I exist really for that exact moment. That is why I stand before you. To tell you that that day is coming for all of us. To tell you that we will not escape unless we are blessed to be here when the Lord returns. And even then, uh, the same, a similar situation awaits us as we stand before our maker. But I also exist to say not only will that day come, but there is good news that there is something we can do about that moment right now. It will come for all of us, but there is something we can do about that moment right now. We settle accounts now with God in Jesus Christ. We can be reconciled to him through faith so that such a day, such a consideration, which is, which is the absolute end of all hope if you have an earthly, an earthbound perspective. But that day, that moment can be not one of despair, but one of hope and one of great anticipation. The order of this world has no answer for death. But if you are in Christ, death has lost its sting. Death will not have the last word, not only over Christ, but over you. If your hope remains tethered to this world, you have no hope at all. Camus said that to him, the ultimate symbol of hope was the Mediterranean sun, because it was a symbol of the constant values of life, beauty, love, justice, and happiness. But the bad thing about the Mediterranean sun is that, yes, it may illuminate many of the good things that we see here below, and there are many good things. There are many non-Christians who give their lives to admirable causes. But the sun, if it illuminates the good things of this world, it illuminates the despair of this world. That there is death and a curse that snuffs out the hopes of every individual. Camus calls his optimism realistic because it does not extend beyond the grave. That's why we must live as resurrection realists, not denying the pain and the affliction of this world but answering it with the resurrection. Newton says this, What an assembly will there be the last day. What a constellation of glory when each individual shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, 
No sins, no sorrows, no temptations, no veils, no clouds, no prejudices shall interrupt us then. Perhaps helpful for all of us to think about on this day, this year. Not only will there be no more of any of those things, there will be no more funerals. Because the one who has defeated death will crush it forever. But in the meantime, we do Christian funerals because it is the only hope that this world has. We will continue to bear with our losses and our crosses, knowing that your suffering is not meaningless. Because of the resurrection, there is a meaning that is given to your past. We will continue to proclaim Christ and telling people to run to him and flee to him and rest in him because he gives strength for the present. And we will continue to sing to our risen Lord because it brings heavenly glory down into the present. Live your life with the resurrection at the exact center of your heart, the exact center of all that you do because it will give meaning to your past. It will give strength to your present and hope for your future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all of the glory. We exalt in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we humbly thank you for your plan of redemption. And as we think about our Savior and all that he has done for us, we ask that you would work in our hearts to give us a love and devotion to him, a desire to glorify you, and to bear the testimony of this Christ forward to a watching world. Be with us today. Cleanse us, fill us once again. In Christ's name, amen.